Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. My next guest has been on the show before, and I'm so excited to have her back. Jamie Mailer, welcome back. Uh, she's a licensed therapist. She is the author of the upcoming book, Toxic Relationship Recovery. Trust me, you guys are going to want to get this book. She's a podcast host, a content creator who specializes in helping people unlearn people-pleasing, overcoming toxic relationships, and generational trauma, and is killing it on all of the social media platforms. So Jamie, welcome back. Yeah. And I just found out that this is going to be around my birthday. So the books being the book being out and my birthday being tomorrow, like I'm like, oh my God, I'm excited. It's perfect. It's a perfect time for all of this to go down. So yeah. I love it. It's so many things that are helping and, you know, just, I I love what you're doing because you're just, you're diving so deep into healing. And I know that the last time you came on, we talked a lot about religious Mm -hmm. trauma, which was a phenomenal conversation. If you guys want to dive into that one, you have to go way back, but awesome combo. And now you're talking about toxic relationships. And I think these are such important topics that are so relevant to so many of us. But before we get into that, for those that did not listen to the first episode, shame on you go listen to it but let me let me start out with who you are and your background because I want people to understand the woman that they're listening and or looking at right now yeah so I oh my goodness where to start where to start so yeah I mean a little bit about me yes I'm a licensed therapist I have three kids I'm married um I grew up in a very strict, slightly, I mean, we could call it cultish, but high demand religion. Um, I kind of fully deconstructed away from that and untangled a lot of my own traumas. And in the process of all of that, I was studying to become a therapist, became a therapist, honed down my expertise in narcissism and toxic relationships. And I've been helping people ever since recover from relationships like this. And, you know, one of the points that I like to humanize this topic is that I like to tell people, you know, I'm not some angelic person sitting on a pedestal telling you how to live because I had a lot of these toxic behaviors that are in my book. I had a lot of toxic problems in my partnerships. Like I was kind of a result of, you know, like what the world threw at me and I take full accountability for it. So I tell people a lot, this is not meant to like, when we talk about toxicity, this is not meant to be a shaming narrative. It's meant to be claiming it and aware, being aware of what we need to identify in order to untangle it. So yeah, that's part of my story. And I actually, I'm speaking more up about it because people need to hear that it's okay to, to, to identify certain behaviors that you've done in the past that were most likely informed by trauma. And it's okay to identify them. And there's hope that you can get to a point of processing where it's not who you are anymore. It's just part of your past. That's it. And I think that's why me and you connected so much because after the first time I had had you on the show, we just stay connected. And I feel like I connect the most with people who are not only authentic, but say, hey, like I've been through it. Everyone who listens to my podcast knows I am very upfront with my personal history and the fact that I have been through some toxicity in my life. We are not immune to it. And, you know, just because we're educating on it doesn't necessarily mean that like we haven't gone through it ourselves. But what I've noticed is that even for myself and people that I've worked with, 
it feels like if you trickle back and you think of the starting point or where all of this characteristics or behavior traits started, it always seems to stem from childhood. So let's start at the beginning. Is childhood a predisposition for toxic relationships? And if it is, why? Uh, This is tricky. So I would say yes, and it's part of a bigger narrative, if that makes sense. So if you think about where we would begin in order to understand relationships. This is actually where I begin when I'm when I'm teaching about it, when I begin to teach about it here or when I'm doing it in the book. It's literally a fundamental value that you have to grasp that these 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 values, the values that you're starting to norm are modeled to us in childhood and teenage development. And when we understand how strongly those models integrated into our psyche, we can untangle some of the origins or precipitants of why I was okay with my partner calling me the C word or why I thought it was normal for my boyfriend to ignore me for five days and pretend I didn't exist and treat me very poorly, right? So when we talk about childhood, yes, I would say a lot of this does originate in childhood, but by the time we get to be adults, we typically have lost what the precipitant was because we're so far removed from it. Um, What I typically see is people who've had models that were what we would consider, um, I guess, normed, right? So I will have clients that'll be like, I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing, but they'll say something along the lines of like, uh, my parents were amazing. And I'm like, that's not, I'm not saying the reason you're in a toxic relationship is because your parents are pieces of shit. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, I'm saying that we are a collective consciousness that are in, that's integrated into the world in so many different dimensions. One of them is getting raised by our parents. But as a child, did you watch Friends? Did you watch Ross and Rachel? Did you watch their vitriol relationship of on again, off again? Did you watch your pastor normalized gender roles? Did you watch them scold their wife in front of everybody in the congregation? Did you think that's reasonable? Right? Like, so in this actually is covered in the book, I call I go through all the foundational pillars. And I I call out media, religious influences, friend influences, parent influences, which is probably the strongest. And that's really why it gets the most hype because people go, it's my parents' fault. And I go, right. It could be informed by some of the models that you saw growing up. Yet, I'll I'll be the first to say, there are people that I help that have parents that are in a phenomenal relationship. And then their parents are scratching their head. How did my child find themselves in a relationship that they're so miserable and they think it's normal? Like I'm the mom telling my daughter who's 23 years old, you deserve better. Like this isn't, no, you deserve so much better, right? And so what ends up happening is they want it to be what I would say culturally, what people think it is. They're like, oh, they must have had parents terrible role models, right? That's what you sit there and say. But many people are saying parents, when in reality, your role model very well could have been Jennifer Aniston as Rachel, or your role model could have been your bestie from seventh grade to 12th grade who treated her boyfriend like a piece of shit 
And you thought that was okay because from seventh grade to 12th grade, they were dating for four years. And every time you talked to her, she treated her boyfriend like actual garbage. And you went, I guess that's how we treat boyfriends, right? And so what ends up happening is these models can have exponentially impactful, like they can hit us so hard in childhood. And then we have to be left trying to figure out which which thing was the biggest influence on us, right? And it leaves us confused a lot. Social media, I think, has played a huge role with the changes of our society with so many aspects of our behaviors, you know, when it comes to our body image, when it comes to relationships, do you feel like social media or at least how we are now being exposed to so much information is now changing the types of relationships and why we stay in them longer? I think it's changing them in all facets of the word, if that makes sense. It's changing some for the better and it's also changing some for the worse. And that's unfortunately the, that is, that is almost like on par with what the society's doing anyways, right? Remember social media is just a reflection of what society is already doing. It's usually just a deeper peek into our consciousness. So this is why people go, why are there only trolls on the internet? I go, have you, did, did you, did you grow up like in high school? Did you not think there were trolls? They just weren't in comment sections. They were just pestering you on the back of the bus. That was the troll, right? I think what ends up happening is social media is a amplifier and it also is an accelerator. It accelerates the momentum of where we would be on a society level and it pushes us faster and further down the road, right? And so if you think about social media as one of those foundational layers, I do actually talk about this. The idea of social media being something I need to like present myself as, there's actually an entire section where I talk about the I talk about a theoretical couple who um basically presents themselves as like deeply in love and they're fucking miserable, right? I actually, that's an entire section. Like that's a whole little paragraph in there. And I go, listen, think about those people. Think about the friends that you have, that you go back a few years and you're like, did, if they, let's say they didn't delete their socials and you go, you wrote this when you were literally about to move out. And you let everybody know that that was the best partner you like, I love them so much and we're amazing and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, are we talking about the same person? Because you just told me next weekend you're moving out. Right. And it's like, what is that about? And it, so in the idea of toxic relationships, one of the factors that I hit on is I teach the readers about how much a toxic relationship feeds on the facade. It feeds on a facade. It feeds off of the cultural perception of what the relationship should be or, or is being perceived as from the outside, right? So I, I talk about it from two different dynamics. The person that's per perpetuating the toxicity or the harm, the person that's perpetuating the problem is desperate to make sure their 
outside aesthetic looking relationship is like pristine, that like it has to look really good, right? And then we have the person who's enduring it, either the top, you know, I call it different things, but you know, tolerator or the person enduring it, the endurer. Um, when you talk to them, if you're going to ask them like, why did you do that on social media? Many of them in hindsight will be like, I was writing it for myself because I wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe that it was possible that this relationship could be like that. So I wrote it because that was what I wanted out of the relationship, but it just never was reality. It's just what I wanted to be true. And I go, right. That's where when you break the facade, you can start to heal. That's what I talk about. I go, you have to break the facade inside of you, not even on social media. You have to break it within so you can unlock what you really feel about this person. So how do we break down what a toxic relationship is? How do you define that? Because some people would argue, well, every relationship has its challenges. So where do we where do we draw the line as to a relationship that has just some challenges that are up and down versus these are toxic behaviors and traits? Right. Like I would, I would, I mean, not that I love the DSM, but I would use almost that model as a descriptor of like, we have to look at the, per how much severity, the intensity and the, uh, the impact on functioning, right? So if you look at that model and that's from the DSM, um, but <laughs> if you look at that model, if the relationship is showing a pattern of harm, a pattern of harm, okay? So this isn't, I had a bad day. I struggled with today. I said something I didn't mean to. And then that's a one, once in a, and I don't mean like they smacked you and shoved you against the wall. I'm just saying they had a bad day and they kind of just said, go away or something. Like they were just short to you or something. Okay, if that's an occasional thing, that's much different than someone immersed in harmful everyday behaviors that make you feel unsafe. Like these are the, these are the pillars, I would say. The relationship makes you feel unsafe. The relationship makes you feel confused. There's, ne there's never stability. There's never a sense of groundedness. There's, there's a lack of clarity, right? So we have the constant confusion, but there's also beyond the confusion, you don't get clarified anything. They don't, they don't share their emotions or if they do share their emotions, it's weaponized, right? So there's a lack of clarity, there's confusion, there's a pattern of behavior that causes harm to you. Think about that, right? And this is where people do their missteps. They go, well, their threshold's too high. And they go, well, yeah, they're mean to me every day, but they don't hit me every day. Okay, well, your threshold's too high, right? And I, I'm not gonna say that, but like that's, that's how I help people visualize what that means. In a trauma survivor or trauma, someone who's re recovering from trauma, this is the number one factor of why trauma has such an intersectionality with toxic relationship recovery. Because if you understand trauma, trauma teaches you to have a threshold that's too high. It teaches you to tolerate behavior that's cruel 
that's conniving, that's manipulative, that truly harms you, either, either physically or emotionally. And trauma says, yeah, that's part for the course, right? That's what we dealt with. That, that's, that's our life, right? That's, that's, how, that's why I said the Ross and Rachel example is kind of dangerous, right? Because if I normalize that people have vitriolic breakups and the world ends and then everything falls apart and then everyone comes back together and then they have really good sex and then they all get back together again and again and again and again. And I sit there and I go, we've normed the shit out of that narrative. It's a trope now in Hollywood. And I go, we're not doing any favors for normalizing what a healthy relationship is. Because what I tell people is healthy relationships are boring looking from the outside. They're not boring feeling from the inside, but they're boring looking from the outside because they don't have crazy stories about the person throwing the throwing the shopping cart at the car because they were freaking super angry at each other. They don't have that story because it didn't happen because they respect each other. Right. But guess what makes on Hollywood? Guess what makes it onto Love Island? Guess what makes it onto like all of the media, you know, like the all of those shows. Right. That. Because that is showing a disruption. And when we see disruption, our psyche goes, "Ooh, let's pique our interest. So then we pique our interest. And then the collateral damage of our peaked interest is normalization in an immature psyche. So if the psyche is not mature enough to realize, oh, what I'm watching is an inflated version of reality that's manufactured by Hollywood executives. If you haven't matured to that level, you are going to take away and be like, I don't know. I saw that guy, that that guy lied just like I saw. I mean, that's what guys do, right? And I have to look at some people and be like, are you telling me that you think every man is going every single word they that they say out of their mouth they're lying? Well, yeah, that's that's like that's literally how men are. Immediately my brain goes, that's fully normalized then for you. It's fully normalized. You have normalized the fuck out of being lied to. And so you're expecting people to lie to you. And that unfortunately, when you start believing it because it's founded probably from another relationship that did lie to you, that's part of the trauma healing, right? You're like, oh, well, I fully believe that. And that means your threshold is too high. So you're going to tolerate being lied to. You're going to be like, oh yeah, of course he lied. Why wouldn't he lie? I go, your threshold is too high, (laughs) right? So it's like, so that's the whole thing. I mean, I'll get to it at the, you know, closer to the end of the episode. But one, I know you, one of the things we were going to talk about was like, what do people do to start recovering? And honestly, I mean, I'll circle back, but like the threshold question is a huge thing to tackle for mm-hmm. sure. I watch shows like the Johnny Depp and the Amber yes. Heard trial. I just watched it on Netflix. And now mind you, I, I watched some of the the trial, but when I watched the documentary, a couple things came to my mind. You know, first I'm like, it, it's not, I don't think this was one-sided. I think it was just a toxic relationship from both ends. And I, I actually 
don't kill me for saying this, you guys, but I feel like there was some legitimacy on Amber's side. And I think it was minimized because of how it was presented. The media people were on his side versus hers. But I think there was toxicity on both ends. Do you feel like there's a level of addiction when it comes to these like really high highs and low lows? Because it, it feels like if there's that much toxicity and it's from both ends and you're just kind of stuck in this loop, someone from the outside would easily say, well, why do you stay in that situation? Why don't you just leave? If you know that it's toxic and you know that it's draining you and you know that it's fucked up, why are you continuing to stay in the relationship? What do you say to that? I typically say because it's so normal to you and it's so familiar that why would you think something better out there exists? Seriously, I've heard that where people go, you really think there's someone out there that's actually going to talk to me like the way you do your role modeling? That's bullshit, Jamie. And I go, are you serious? And they're like, no, that's bullshit. Like when you do your role modeling and you show a green flag and you show how someone respects their partner, that doesn't exist. And I go, oh my God, like my heart literally breaks because what they're, what that person is telling me is they've never seen someone who has emotional intelligence enough to navigate difficult, conflictual conversations with ease and safety and respect. You haven't seen that. You've never seen someone do that. Well, I've seen it, but it's in the movies and I've seen you do it, but like that doesn't really happen. And I go, it's so, nor it's so expected, Carice. Like it's expected where they're like, okay, yeah, but if I leave this guy, what if the next guy actually does push me down the stairs? All he does is push me against the wall, <laughs> right? I'm like, oh my God, are you, you're scared that you're going to get worse abused than you currently are. And that is absolutely part of the lie of a toxic relationship. It absolutely is. They go, their inner narrative is very much like, this is as good as it's going to get. And until their brain believes that there is something better and something more meaningful that aligns with who they are, they won't see the utility in making the change. They're not going to see the usefulness of doing that endeavor because it's a lot. Some of that is I got to buy a new house. I got to change my kids. Like I got to figure out custody. Like some people are like, I'm not, it's not worth the change to me. And that's reality. The reality is people are going, okay, so you mean to tell me that you're not breaking up with your toxic partner because it's too hard. It's easier to stay than it is to leave. People absolutely choose that because it's not about ease. It's not about, oh, this is easier, like psychologically. They're saying, I don't think that there's much, I mean, I can't speak for everyone. I'm saying like a kind of a general consensus here. There's this belief that there might not be anything better or there could be something worse, right? And then sometimes if that belief has been conquered and you're like, no, I know there's something better, what ends up happening is and this is where it gets very, okay, so if we're going on the spectrum of toxicity, this is like highly, highly severe, okay? We're going in the severe port, point for a second, okay? In the severe versions, okay? 
of toxic relationships. It becomes dangerous just to leave in and of itself. Whether or not you know there's something better out there, whether or not you know that you can actually do the divorce, you know that you can handle the move, you know that you can do that, you know, whatever is the barrier, you know you can handle it. In this, the most severe form of toxic relationships, that person is going to make you feel physically unsafe to break up with them. And this is the, if I can't have you, no one will. This is the, okay, well, you know, if you want to leave, well, then I'll keep the dog and maybe I'll just forget to feed it. Maybe I'll just let it out. Never, you know, maybe I'll just like forget I have a dog. Maybe I'll do that. What do you think? That's how it sounds. And it's terrifying and it's horrific and it's real. Those are real scenarios that people go through that people experience every day. And that, that's where in the book, I actually talk about it in a paragraph about healthy relationship privilege. I go, I mean, I didn't say F you because <laughs> I can't say F you, but I say, listen, if you've never experienced the magnitude and the, the, the immense oppression that it can feel to be in a toxic relationship and you're sitting there on your high horse and you're going, she could just leave. He could just get out. They don't have to be with them. I go, you do not know their story. You have no idea what's been said behind closed doors. And the reality is there are some humans out there that are like, if I break up with them, I might die. So yeah, when people hear that, they go, that's so dramatic, Jamie. Come on. That might be like one out of like a mil. I go, no, that's you protecting your consciousness. There are so many humans. And I hope that your listeners haven't gone through this. But if any one of your listeners have gone through something like this, I want you to know that I hear you and you're valid. And it, your story is so fucking real. So yes, I wrote that in the book and I said, back the fuck off. It's not your place. You had a healthy relationship. You don't have the context. You had healthy relationship privilege. And the person that you're judging doesn't have that. So back off. It's not your place. Did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a coach and a professional tarot reader? Now, it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a way to connect with your guides on life issues such as career and love and spirituality. And sometimes people need one-on-one -on -one coaching to help them through breakups, toxic relationships, healing the mother wound, their spiritual path, or navigating tools as an empath. So I do all of these things to help my clients pursue life and decisions and understand themselves. So if you are interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching or a tarot reading, click the link below to get started. Okay, back to the podcast. It's so hard. Like I think when you're going through a toxic relationship and especially when you finally get to the point where it ends for whatever reason, I think a lot of people who start grieving the relationship loss, even though they knew it was abusive or toxic or bad, I always get a lot of questions of why do I feel so such a, an enormous amount of grief for the person that I know hurt me so much? And I went through the same thing multiple times, you know, so 
I would love to hear from you though, because even the other day I had a client who, uh, when she was talking to me, she's like, I know it was terrible for me. I know it was toxic, but I just can't help but, but grieve the relationship. And I'm, I'm just in such a, an enormous amount of pain from it. So what do we do when we're going through this, this grief? Is that normal? Is that something that we should be feeling? Should we be feeling guilty for feeling sad that we're not with our abuser anymore or just in the toxic relationship? Absolutely. This is an amazing question. So this, this is a complex idea and I know y'all can handle it. It's complex though. A lot of the people that are, you know, experts in psychology, you'll keep hearing like, it's not all or nothing. Sometimes they use the word black and white. Sometimes they use thought distortions, whatever. But what I want you to hear is when you're healing, you do not have to choose to have one emotion over another, you can have two emotions coexist. So you can grieve, you can have grief that a relationship that you had for years is no longer existing. It's, it's you're broken up or it's just falling apart. You can grieve that and acknowledge that this relationship wasn't healthy. That can coexist. So you're really embodying a both and. So what you said, Carice, like when you said, I felt this exact thing, this is something that people feel for their parents. This is something that people feel for their partners. This is how people feel, especially me who deconstructed. I have these memories. I mean, I could cry right now. I have these memories of like really beautiful things that came out of my time when I was super religious, but I don't have to choose because they were beautiful. They were beautiful in that moment. And religion did hurt me. That's the honest truth, right? So you might have a memory of one of your exes that's just really beautiful. Like they, it was a really calm moment. They were very actually respectful of you in that moment. You might've gone on a trip. You might've done something together and you come across a picture and you go, I, I, I loved that. I loved that moment for me. You don't have to choose. You can love it and realize that relationship expired. It, it met its expiration point. There was no longer any work that we could actually get done. We had to move on, right? So that's a coexisting emotion. It's a both and emotion. So what I would say is when we try to choose, when we try to choose, this is where the brain experiences a lot of dissonance. It goes, okay, well, if I entertain that I'm grieving, that must mean I'm going to run back to them. So it's actually dangerous to grieve and say that I actually cared about them. And the reality is you're allowed to acknowledge that you, you loved them and they couldn't love you in the way that you you needed to be loved or they couldn't love you in a healthy way. They couldn't love you in a healthy way, right? So you, this is this is the reality of it. Think about this. If you weren't exhibiting a bunch of toxic behaviors back, I mean, and I know some people are like, I did eventually, but like, I'm like, okay. But like, regardless, think about this. If you weren't precipitating a lot of the issues, your love, your ability, your, your ability to love them wasn't, manufactured in any way that was a real bond that you had 
you really did love them. That's not what I'm saying. I believe that you did love them. What I think is difficult to process is when you start realizing that some of the things they said to you were lies or some of it was made up or a lot of it was made up on, you know, false pretenses or whatever. Or you agreed to things that you didn't get full consent for, whatever. There wasn't a full context for the stuff you agreed to. All of this happens. And then you realize, oh, my God, I was partnered or married in some cases to literally a manufactured figment of somebody's imagination. I wasn't actually bonded to who that person really was. Talk about the profound sense of coexisting energy there. You do love them. And what you were able to get back was such a bastardization of what real love was that your brain is saying, hey, but we do love them. And I'm like, yeah, okay, let's just sit with that for a second. I'm not saying you didn't love them. I'm saying the way they loved you back was harmful. And when you realize that and you absorb it and you embody it yourself, you have a very complex emotion that you're handling, which is coexistent love running alongside of maybe betrayal, maybe deception, maybe, maybe it was even worse, like acts of violence, right? You're sitting there and you're like, how do I love someone that smacked me across the face? How do I love someone that threw me down the stairs? Right? And this is where if you try to tell yourself you cannot process unless you hate them, you're doing an act of self-rejection in that moment. That's how I try to frame it for people. I go, you do not deserve to self-reject anymore. Your body is telling you, I do care about that partner and bring the and up, amplify the and. And the reality is there's no way that I can have a healthy relationship with them. So I'm grieving that too, right? So this is where I think it's helpful for people to hear because when they think they have to choose, that's what sets them up for like a re I actually think this is a big part of rebounding where someone goes, no, that was a really good memory. You know what? I'm going to just call him. Oh, I go, listen, hold on. It was a good memory. Nobody's contesting that. I believe you. And that memory is not sufficient enough, like of a foundation to immediately have to choose one or the other. And that's what the brain does. It goes, if you entertain that thought that you had that really good memory, that means you really do love them, which means it's not as bad as you think, which means go ahead and text them back. Mm, mm. So true. Okay. So one of the things that you talk about in your book is self-awareness. And what I think is really important, especially why I think it's crucial is that we need to understand our part and the role that we played in a relationship, regardless if it was abusive or toxic. And I, a lot of people are like, you know, but I was the victim and blah, blah, blah. That might be true. But at what point do you say like, okay, I could have done X, Y, and Z differently. And I find even when I look back at my own story, there was a lot of red flags in the beginning that came up 
that I ignored anyway. I ignored my intuition. I continued to move forward and it got me deeper in the cycle. Why is self-awareness crucial? Well, this is speaking to the second half of where we get to. So the first half, for anyone who's curious, the first half is all about like the beginning stages and recognition, signs, symptoms, strategy, like the things that they did in the relationship to create it to become problematic, right? So why did it become so bad? What were they doing? What were they saying? What were they not doing, right? So I have all the language in there for you and it walks you through all of that, right? And then at the middle of the book, I walk you through like a fake breakup. Like in theory, there's a theoretical breakup happening, right? And I don't define whether or not they broke up with you or you broke up with them. But the reason why I put it right in the middle of the book is because I'm framing it to hit recovery, which means after the relationship is over, like you just said, all of the onslaught comes in, all of the thoughts. What did I miss? What happened? What what was the right flag? What did I, how do I, here it goes. How do I prevent this from happening again? There it is, because that's what the psyche is terrified of. It goes, we just dealt with a lot of bullshit. Can we figure out how to not go back toward that bullshit? Or can we not find, you know, Chad 2.0? Like, don't find the second version of this person, right? Okay, so when you're talking about self-awareness, this is why... It's not about blame at all. It's not about blame. It's not about, um, yes, we do have to take accountability for actions. Like I said in the beginning, like if you are creating some harmful patterns too, you have to be honest with yourself. Like a lot of that is true, except when people are like, I actually think it's very dangerous to take this, um, to take a toxic relationship and and, and it remain unexamined. Do you hear what I'm saying there? Like if you are, if you have been in a harmful relationship in the past, whether that was with your parents or any system or your, or your partner, and you aren't examining what parameters were in play during that dynamic, you're missing an opportunity for healing. You are. You're missing an opportunity to fully absorb all of the immense richness that comes from learning about yourself and how you operated when you were experiencing that toxicity, when you were experiencing that abuse, when you were experiencing that harm, okay? So when we're talking about awareness, that's all that is. We're saying we're taking it seriously this time. We're looking at all the factors. We're looking at everything that happened and we're saying, hmm, what was it about that red flag that allowed me to completely overlook it? What was it? Right? And we, there's not always a specific, like, clear cut answer to that. It's just that what that's part of awareness, though, right? It's like, I can't answer that for every single person, but for, like, let me just give you a theoretical person, right? I'm a theoretical person might be like, well, the reality is, I don't want to be honest with myself. And I was very lonely and I didn't want to be alone anymore. And yeah, they were acting a little sketchy, but I didn't want to be alone. Okay. I, that is not the definitive answer, please. <laughs> like, it's just 
for some folks, like when they ask themselves deeper questions, what was the cause of you ignoring a red flag? A lot of the reasons why people don't ask, answer that question, it's because it's way too fucking painful to answer. It's way too hard to answer why someone would not be, and sometimes people don't have the answer because they don't have a skill set around self-advocacy or boundaries or whatever. So sometimes the answer is, I didn't have a skill that I didn't realize I was, like, how, how would I phrase this? I didn't know I was going to need to have that skill and it wasn't developed. So the second someone challenged me and pushed my boundaries, I was completely unprepared, right? So when someone says to me, um, let's say I had a very healthy, I don't know if I can go, I mean, can we cover everything? Like, can I go into like sex and stuff? Okay. Go ahead. Uh, of course. Okay. So I just want like, so for example, this is actually very seen in like sexual dynamics. So let's say I was partnered up, like, you know, let's say I had a few girlfriends that were really respectful and bi or whatever. And I was like, I was, I, I had a lot of sexual experiences with women that were very respectful and consensual and all of these things. Right. And I'm bi. So I was like, whatever. I hit it off with this dude. I might as well like, you know, fuck around. Um, and so, so I'm just, starting to make out with this dude, right? And all of a sudden, because I've never had to develop a boundary around sex, I'm mortified when they start pushing me around and trying to get me to do things during that experience that I don't want to do. And I go, what are you doing? And they're like, come on, this is just how we, this is just like, what do you mean? Like, come on. And I'm like, wait, are you pushing me to do something? Like, are you literally pushing my head down right now? And they're like, yeah, what about it? And I'm like, what, what are you doing? Right? Okay. If I, that would be like me now. But if I didn't have that skill, I might be terrified. I might be like, oh my God, are they going to kill me? Oh my God. Like, do I need to do this? Or like, am I going to, am I going to get through this night? Like, I've watched way too much true crime to know that like sometimes when women say no, they get freaking bashed in the head. Like, what do I do here? Oh my God. I don't know what to say. I'm going worst case scenario because I have no skill set around this. I'm terrified. Right. And so what ends up happening in some toxic relationships, especially people who haven't been in them ever, they start getting thrown experiences and situations they've never had to develop a skill set around. This is actually more evident in families that like siblings that used to get along really well and families that had good models. And they go, how did it get so bad? And I go, what was it like in the beginning? Were they pushing your boundaries every two seconds? Well, I guess I didn't see it that way. But yeah, I guess I like never said no. And I just kind of like let, I don't know. It's like, and it's like, right, because you didn't have to do that because your relationships with your family and friends were safe and they respected you. So when you met someone who was unsafe, and didn't respect you, you didn't know how to act because you didn't have any skill sets around that. And that's not me blaming you. That's just factual information. You didn't have a boundary skill that you thought you, you might've even thought you had it, but no one's ever pushed your sexual boundaries like that. So you didn't even know you had to flex that muscle ever. That's what happens in toxic relationships is that people will try to push a boundary and you had no idea you needed to have a skill set around this. You're like, oh my God, I didn't know that I was going to have to like defend myself. <laughs> like, why are you pushing my buttons here? Why are you steamrolling over my consent? 
well, this is just fucking normal. This is what I do with my girlfriends. Uh, you're not doing it with me, right? But if I don't have that skill and I go, oh, oh, okay, I guess, yeah, I'll go along with it, right? You go along with it. You leave that engagement and you go, oh my God, I feel disgusting. You're not disgusting. You were just, your boundary was just violated. You were just violated in some kind of way, right? And yes, people are going to be like, take personal responsibility. You said yes. But I go, remember, in trauma recovery and trauma fear, like what ends up happening is you genuinely think it's life or death. So of course you're going to choose to just do and go along. Your responsibility though, this is what I would say. Your responsibility in that situation is to acknowledge that you didn't have the skill and that you want to build that skill. So A, never talk to that guy again. That's one of your responsibilities. And then another responsibility is to acknowledge that there's a skill set that you might want to work on. You might want to be like, okay, so let me walk through that scenario. What would I do in the scenario where someone was doing that to me again? Instead of putting water under the bridge and sweeping it under the rug, ask yourself, I didn't feel prepared. I didn't feel prepared for that situation. And it left me feeling uncomfortable. And the man in that situation was not in the right for that. Like it was super messed up what they did. And I do need to acknowledge that clearly I need to figure out a way to develop some skill sets around this. So this is where it becomes very tricky, Carice, because people start thinking, oh, this sounds like victim blaming. It sounds like you're making it like her fault that she ended up just going along with the blowjob or something. And I'm like, well, it's not her fault at all. It's not her fault. We're not talking about fault. We're talking about how would we want to prevent that to happen to her ever again? And what steps are, is it going to take to be able to get her to feel more, um, I guess, bolstered or like fortified when that behavior crosses her path again? And I hope it doesn't happen again to her, but it could happen again to her, right? So that's what we mean by it. We're not saying, oh, you were unprepared. What just happened to you? You deserve it. No, we are not saying you deserve to be violated in any way. What we are saying is that person violated you. They took advantage of your lack of boundaries and they saw an opportunity. They took advantage of it. And then you were left feeling violated, right? So when we talk about recovering, some of that is the point of self-awareness. You have to realize what happened in that situation. How did I feel like I couldn't say anything? Was it even safe to say anything? And in some cases, this is why it's so nuanced, Carice, because in some cases, there wasn't, there aren't, there aren't um, cut and dry boundaries I could even tell you. Because there are going to be some people, because I work in this huge spectrum, right? I have some people that have like some problematic behaviors in their relationship. And then I have like very violent stuff that can happen, right? So it's like, in some cases, the nuance is, it doesn't matter how skill sets you are, like how much skills you have. If someone's actually threatening you, you can't, no skill sets going to be able to, to, to kind of get over that, you just have to keep yourself safe, which means what I keep telling people, and this is the hardest pill to swallow, sometimes you just have to stay alive. You have to choose to stay alive. 
And I know that's hard to hear, but that happens in toxic relationships where I'll have someone and be like, you know, marital rape happens and marital coercion happens. And they'll be like, I didn't think my husband could rape me, but he basically did last night. And I go, okay, so what about last night that happened? Did you feel like you couldn't speak up for yourself? Well, we've been having issues in the bedroom. And last night before, you know, we went to bed, I saw him like, look at his gun. And I go, okay, has he been violent in the past? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah, of course this, this is, this is where it starts adding up where you start realizing that the behavior and when it gets extreme, you start realizing that in certain cases, the skill set isn't going to be enough for some people. It will be where if you have a boundary and you go, you know what? I got to go and you leave. And you don't die because not everyone's going to kill you when you put a boundary up, right? But then this is where the woman's intuition or not just women, it can be anyone's intuition. I shouldn't genderize it. But Chris, think about this. You said to yourself earlier, you said there were certain moments where my intuition was speaking and I literally just was ignoring it. Okay. This is what I mean by human's capacity for intuitive knowledge. If you actually think, that by in that moment, this is what I'll leave, like, this is what I'll leave the topic on. In that moment, if you actually think that if you put a boundary skill into play in the dialogue, that your life will be threatened, trust that intuition. Please trust that. Because the last thing I want is for someone to be like, I did do a boundary. I did. And I got shot. What do you want me to do about that, Jamie? Think about that. So my brain goes, I trust the people that go through these situations. As much as people think, oh, well, they're struggling and they must not have it. And I go, no, even when you're really struggling, even when you're in pain, you can tap into those layers of yourself. And if you tap into them and you listen to them, that's how people's lives can be saved. Absolutely. I mean, we're going to the extreme in that, but like when we think about awareness in, in a scope of recovery, all of these have an impact when you can unlock the layer of awareness, when you can be like, okay, you're right, Jamie. I genuinely think my life is in danger sometimes in my marriage. All right, let's have a, let's, let's bring that up. Let's bring it to the table. Let's take that seriously. Because if that's what you're telling me, we have to create a different kind of game plan around this. I'm not going to work on, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first person to say this. I will be the worst therapist in the room and I'll be like, I'm not working on boundary skills anymore. I'm not. This is an entirely different game plan. If you think you are going to get killed, I cannot tell you to be like, um, hubby, can you please just listen to me and honor me? And like, this is where I end and you begin they, that we're beyond that because they're threatening your life. Right. So I can't, that's, that's the level of awareness we have to get. Sometimes it's not, it's not like one cookie cutter fits all. I can't say just lay a boundary because for some people that means they're going to die. Okay. <laughs> that's why this is such a complex topic. Because some people will take what I'm saying and they'll be like, 
well, I don't think I'm going to die. And I go, okay, there it is. You already answered the question. You most likely are wanting to work on some skill development. That's it. You don't have to be scared of like your partner if their fear isn't there and there's no sign of any problems, right? So it's about trusting yourself as well. So let's break down somebody is getting out of a toxic relationship. Let's say it's me. I'm, I've gotten out of a toxic relationship. I have a history of toxic relationships. I'm aware of it. I'm fucking over it. I want to start my healing journey. I don't want this shit no more. I want peace in my life. Where do we start? Let's, let's break down some things that somebody can do today. What can I do starting today to ensure my not, well, I don't know if I want to say ensure my safety, but just really start to navigate changing, changing the cycle for myself. What do you recommend? Um, I would say one of the most powerful things you can do is get very familiar with who you are. And what I mean by that is understand the value systems that you carry inside of yourself, which means if you highly value family, you need to stand by that. The second a boyfriend or girlfriend or person comes into your life and says, I don't want kids, you have that standard. You have to stand by that standard and you have to claim your identity. That is a huge factor in recovery because I'll walk with people and they'll completely be unpartnered. And I'll be like, like, think about this. Think about how many friends you've had that are like this. Where when they're unpartnered, you realize you're getting like the rawest form of them. And then the second they're partnered, it's like this hindered personality, right? And, you know, we had a saying when I was growing up about like the tofu girlfriend where they just took on the flavor of whatever boyfriend had the most powerful personality, right? And so, I mean, that's not the like kindest thing, but like it's, um, cause that can be anybody, but the idea of someone having a powerful trait or characteristic or personality um, or a preference, okay? So for example, like this is where it works better in examples. You being able to identify that you hate sports, that you love children and you want to have kids, that you want to have career and that you can identify that and say, I want to have career and kids. So I'm going to have to save and figure out how that's going to work. Right. Um, I want this. I want that. I want that. If someone goes, what's the first step in recovery? I go literally get to know yourself better. Get to know yourself better. Actually ask yourself if someone came at me asking me to compromise this, would I compromise it? That, that question right there. So let's do like, I don't know, let's come up with something small. Like, um, I highly value visiting my family. But if I'm a partner that you don't know is problematic right now because there's not all the cards on the table right now. And I go, mm, I hate your family. I don't really want to hang out with them. When you enter a new relationship and you know you have a high value around your family, you're reaching kind of an impasse. Because what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to dialogue with your partner and either say, okay, you don't have to love them, but I'm definitely going to be still hanging out with them. Like I used to see them at least a couple times a month and I'll 
probably continue to see them at least once a month, um, you know, to hang out with them, maybe do dinner or whatever. No, no, I don't want you to hang out with them either like that. They suck. Well, what do you think you're repeating right now? If you go, okay, whatever. What do you think's happening? Like the only thing I can, the, the best way I can describe what's happening there is they are forming you into the person they want you to be and not the person who you are. That's it. They're forming you into the person they would like you to be, not who is currently standing in front of them. So the second you compromise on a high value of yours, you're starting the cycle. Because you are trading in who you actually are for who they want you to be. And the second they know they can do that, you just handed over so much power. You just handed so much power over. And that's the thing is in this book, I need, I need the listeners to hear this. One of the things that you're going to hear echoed constantly is that you are allowed to have your own power not power over anyone else, not power over, you know, what your partner does, who they talk to. You don't have power over them, but you do have power over yourself. So when you can step into your sovereignty, when you can step into your authority and go, that's okay. You don't have to like my friends. And your ability to control whether or not I hang out with them that's not going to fly. So of course I'm going to respect you and I'm not going to hang out with them every single night. But what you just said about being like, I don't like your best friend. That's not going to work because I'm going to continue to see them. So you either have to just get over the fact that I have a friend that you don't like, or we're just not going to be able to continue to be together. And that's what people don't want to realize. They don't want to admit that a person that they've bonded to is trying to craft them into someone that they're not. And they go, okay, whatever. It's fine. I'll just not talk to her as much. But what you just did though, is you chose their version of you over your version of you. You did. And that's where you get lost. That's where your identity gets lost in toxic relationships. When we're recovering, when we're recovering from these types of relationships, what you're actually recovering is who you actually are. You're recovering your that's past. That's huge. Yes. You're recovering your past or not even your past self. You're recovering who you actually are inside of you. And some people don't really have an answer to that yet. And that's okay. So people are going to, this is actually a classic, literally almost like a trope, like question that happened. It's like, you keep talking about me being who I really am. And I don't know who I am, Jamie. I don't know who I am. And I don't want to have to wait. And that that's a classic one too. Wait until you know who you are or wait until you love yourself before you enter into a relationship. And I go, that is kind of bullshit. And we've kind of deconstructed that. And But what we're really saying isn't you got to wait for the perfect person. We're not saying these people have to be angelic and everything's perfect about them. But what you do need to establish for yourself is a threshold for how you will be treated and for how people will intrude 
inside of your own identity. So if you are a non-religious person and you start dating someone that looks at you and goes, I don't care if you actually believe or not, but I need you to show up. I need you to show up at church with me because it's embarrassing. And you go, okay. (laughs) What you just agreed to is to be part of the facade. And you also agreed to pretend for at least an hour that you're something you're not. And some people, by the way, let me say this. Some people can actually remain peace at that. Like, I don't want to like, this is some caveats here. There are some people that are like, it literally doesn't bother me and it doesn't shift anything about me. Like, I'm okay. If everyone, if someone comes up and was like, praise Jesus, I'm like, I don't really believe in them, but I'm here to support my partner. Peace be with you. I don't know what that means, but have a good day, right? Like, or just you're a good person. I'm a good person. I don't really believe what you believe, but like, I'm just here because my partner is lonely and I'm just supporting them. Okay, that's very different than someone who enters into a church and feels a visceral reaction and is like, everything about this is not aligning with who I am. And you force yourself to show up anyways. Notice it is an internal dialogue that happens inside the self. So when you go, this is inherently against what I think I need to do for myself and you go anyways, that's the moment I'm talking about. That's why in recovery, I'm asking you to recover that sense of self. Literally ask yourself deep questions. Like if I pull out the book right now, there's probably four pages where I call it the standard survey. And you're going through emotional standards, sexual standards, joy standards, communication standards, playfulness standards, right? I talk about every facet. I mean, those are just go, cool. but I talk about every facet that you could have a standard on. And I go, what's your standard for your partner communicating with the gender they're attracted to? What do you mean? Okay, you're dating a man. Are they bi? No, they're straight. Okay. Are they attracted to women? Yes, but they're dating me. Okay, what's your standard for them talking to women? Well, it depends. Are they pretty or not? Okay, well, you just told me about that. That's based on your insecurity then. That's all you're telling me. You're only telling me the reason why you're going to have a problem that your partner is going to talk to someone is if they're ugly, they're allowed to talk to them. If they're pretty, they're not allowed to talk to them. And I go, that's on you. You are creating that because you're insecure that someone might come along and be more pretty. And guess what? The reality is that could happen tomorrow. So you either trust that your partner can even handle another attractive woman and their co-work, like as a co-worker, or you sit with that insecurity forever, let it fester, resent the fuck out of your partner, and then get angry every time you find out there's a new co-worker and I immediately go, oh my God, is it a guy or a girl? Uh, does it matter? Uh, why did you hesitate? Is she pretty? I don't know. I guess she's fairly attractive. Oh, great. Okay. Well, don't even, but don't talk to her. Don't talk to her. Okay. So listen to how the standards themselves can give you the information you need to untangle wounds that you're carrying into the next relationship, right? So your standard might be like, well, I don't think it, okay. This reminds me of the Jonah Hill thing. If you listen to my episode on Jonah Hill, I say, good for him. Did you hear how clearly defined his standards are? 
They're fucking crazy. Not crazy. I don't like to use that word. They're fucking unhinged. They're literally unhinged standards, but good for fucking him for writing them down. Because guess how many men aren't? Guess how many women aren't? Guess how many people that are in the LGBT community, any of them, guess how many people do not, it's everyone. We don't write our standards down because we're too afraid to be honest with what they mean. Write those standards down because guess what? The second Jonah wrote them down, we all know what they mean. It's a radical honesty moment for yourself. Seriously, right? So if you go, okay, well, my standards is they can't talk to women. They can't be friends with women. They can't do anything of the word. They can't go to the happy hours. If I was your therapist, I'd be like, bitch, we got to talk. Like we got to fucking talk about this because what you just told me, and this is where that hesitancy comes in where like the trope of you got to love yourself before you love someone else. Right. But really what they're saying there is you're projecting your wound that they could like, they could stop loving you if another pretty girl comes around and I go, are you carrying that? Is that an old relational wound? Is that from a past relationship? I mean, yeah, I told you we broke up because he started talking to that pretty girl, like at work. Okay, well, what are you doing right now? Because you're absolutely bringing in an old narrative to this new relationship. You're bringing in the old wound to this relationship because you think you're trying to protect yourself from what happened in the past. But what's really happening is you're creating an entire another cycle that they think you don't trust them and they never will. You'll never trust them. And then they're going to carry that resentment, try to be walking around on eggshells. And then the second you find out that their new coworker that they text back about some pamphlet that they had to hand in, you go, oh my God, you're cheating on me. And I go, that's how you end up in this cycle, right? Because you're like, Oh my God, like I, you know, it's like this feeling of like, I'm never going to find a good guy. And I go, you're creating the problem of them running away because you're literally paranoid that they're going to run away. Think about that, right? And then they go, well, I don't know what to tell you. I was just trying to protect myself. And I go, right, but here's the thing. If you're trying to create standards, Carice, and those standards are based on your wounds, you're absolutely recreating the relationship again. Because the wounds that you carried into the, the wounds that you carried from the past relationship that went unhealed are going to find a way to manifest in another variation in the next relationship you have. So what real recovery looks like is sitting with yourself and going, what are the wounds I carry from my past relationship? Seriously, what happened? Was there a betrayal trauma? Was there a trust issue? Were they helicoptering me? So then I felt like I had to helicopter another person. Like, what did they do? Did they never hold accountability for themselves? So then I find myself over explaining everything. I'm justifying every action because I'm paranoid. They think that I'm betraying them. Right. And I go, this is the beginning of the healing process. You start telling yourself. The reality is. 
I'm paranoid. I'm paranoid that I'm never going to find someone who I can trust again. And I go, okay, well, then we have to start there. We absolutely have to start that when you're creating relational standards, they're not based on relational wounds or paranoia from the past dynamic. So that's what I would do. One of the things that practices in the book is do a standard. You can do it alone. Or if you do have a current partner, you can actually have them do it and then do a collaboration. What I would say, though, is look at those standards. Oh, my God, look at those standards. Look at what you want your partner to do or be or say. And I sit there and people are like, oh, well, Jonah said that that was like the people were saying that's boundaries. I go, that's not boundaries. They're standards. They're literally things that if you don't meet, you're not going to work out. So it's the same thing. If I have a standard that the person I'm going to marry is going to want kids, that's not being me being an asshole. That's not me being asking for too much. That's just me having a standard that if I don't find a partner that also wants to have children with me, that I'm not going to waste my damn time. Right? That's a standard that's not based on some kind of wound. That's just based on a preference. But a standard that's based on a wound is going to sound like, um, well, you know, we're starting to get serious. So you got to turn your GPS tracker on and I got to figure out where you are at every time, at every moment. Because you could cheat on me. (laughs) And I sit there and I go, it's just like Jonah Hill. You can have that standard. It's just based on a fucking wound. Read Jonah Hill's standards. I like, I feel for the dude. Because when you read his standards, I could, I, you're reading a fucking book. You're reading every wound that he has, every fear that he's scared might manifest. That's how those read. So when you start making standards and you ask yourself, is this based on one of my wounds? That's where you need to start. Literally, that's your guide map. That's your roadmap. You start there and you go, okay, maybe I wouldn't want to be in a partnership where I had to have my every single, every single moment was accounted for. Like, I don't want that level of paranoia on me. I actually just went through that with my ex. So why would I do that to another person? Well, that's a great talking point. Sure. Why would you do that to another person? Well, I would do it because I'm scared. Okay. So you're scared. What are you scared of? I don't want to be betrayed again. I don't want them to cheat on me. And I go, okay, so are you scared that when they say they love you, they don't mean it? Are you scared that when they tell you that they actually are committed to the relationship, but they're not cheating on you, that they're lying? Because right off the bat, that's a sign that you or both you and your partner need to sit down and talk about that. That's part of the recovery process. I think there's a mis, um understanding that people go, how the hell would I heal from a past relationship if I'm in a new one? And I go, oh, you know what? If anything, you have an ample opportunity to in vivo, in action, in the process, figure out what is showing up in this new relationship and then dialogue about that. You have a really great opportunity to do the practice in action. You don't have to think about it because you actually do have a partner now. 
right? And so you can be like, oh, the second I get really upset about that, I can now, wait, am I safe enough to talk about it? <gasps> I don't think I'm going to get hit or I don't think I'm going to get like emotionally like ripped apart. Okay, maybe I can break through and dialogue about my fears and anxieties about this relationship. There you go. That's a great starting point. It's very complex. Like all this stuff is, all this stuff is very layered. <laughs> it is, but that's what I, I'm so happy that you're, you're coming out with this book because there's so much complexity. And I think that the more that we educate ourselves on our own traumas, our own wounds, how can we change these in the future? That's where the healing process begins. So What's the date launch of your book? Because I'm going to link it for everybody. And yeah, hopefully by absolutely. the time, hopefully by the time you guys are listening or watching this, it should be out. So it should be um, out. Yeah. Yes. It's, we're going to link be, it. Yeah. We're going to figure it out, but it's September 5th. Um, and if there's anything that I would leave you guys with, there's one thing I would leave you guys with is that when we're trying to find someone that loves us, when we're trying to get into a relationship that's healthy, that respects us, I need you to ask yourself what the type of relationship you have with yourself is. Because if the relationship you have with yourself is one of self-loathing and one of resentment and you don't actually care about yourself, it's going to be very difficult to find a partner that's going to be able to love you in the way you need to love yourself. Think about that because if you don't actually care about your own wellness and your own thriving and your own healing, you're going to search for it outside of yourself. And that's the fear I have for a lot of people that are healing from toxic relationships As I go, folks, we are looking for the, what we are looking for in a partner is sometimes the type of love that we absolutely need to foster inside of who we are. We need to treat ourselves with that kind of kindness. You're asking your partner to compliment your dress. Did you compliment your dress or did you call yourself a fat cow? What did you do this morning? Did you walk into the room in your full length mirror and say, I'm a piece of shit. What the fuck am I doing on this dress? Did you do that? Because you were the toxic partner to yourself in that moment. You were the voice of toxicity. You bullied yourself this morning. And then you walk down and your partner's drinking the coffee and you're like, what? Do you, do, do you not see that I'm in a dress? And your partner's like, oh my God, you look awesome. Yeah, whatever. That is how it shows up. That's how it shows up. So if you end up with a partner that really isn't toxic on the next time around, your own toxic voice that carries on from the past, if it doesn't get untangled, it's going to show up. It's going to show up in the morning when you put on that beautiful dress and you call yourself a whore. Because that isn't your own voice. That's not your voice. I'll say that with conviction. That voice that called you a whore is not you. Many times, it's a past abuser. It's a past partner, parent, mentor, sibling, whatever, friend. Someone in the past treated us with unkindness or cruelty 
and we integrated that voice. So if you find yourself having that dialogue where the partner is actually starting to treat you okay, but you're doing that thing to yourself, part of toxic relationship recovery is healing the relationship you have with yourself. And when you realize that, you can really make strides in your healing. Jamie, thank you for coming on once again and sharing your knowledge. I'm always cheering you on from the background. Um, love you as a person, Aww. what you do. Cannot wait to um, read this book in its entirety. And yes. um, I'm so excited for you. So thanks for coming on. Mm-hmm.